Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh, your host in Hiroshima, Japan, sustainability focused content creator and consultant. And I am talking with the amazing Carol's McJilton, uh, the founder of Second Harvest Japan. Thank you so much for joining today, Charles. Well, I guess that'd be amazing if we could get my uh, technology to work. No, you're a man of action. Technology <laughs> is not part of that. <laughs> It's probably true. Now, my yeah. Mac is a 2010 Mac. <laughs> Now, let's talk a little bit about your backstory. So, you originally came to Japan around 1990, is that right?、Uh, 1984. Oh, with, wow. With the US military. And then you started Second Harvest in 2002.、Uh, we incorporated in 2002. We actually started in 2000, but、uh, we officially incorporated on March 11, 2002. Wow. And I was watching、uh, some older videos, but I think still relevant.、Uh, you were saying kind of your inspiration to start Second Harvest started with becoming homeless on purpose and living along the river. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know if I would frame it that way, becoming homeless on purpose. It is true that I did live along the Sumida River、uh, for 15 months in a cardboard box.、Uh, the, really, the purpose of that, or the, really how I started doing that, was I was going to make a self help center for people. I've been working with people in a poor section of Tokyo、uh, for several years at that time. And, but I had a lot of head knowledge up here, but something was missing down here. And originally, I only was going to go there for three months and ended up staying 15 months. And it radically changed my worldview and kind of really informs a lot of what I do today. Probably the biggest and most surprising one about that, that when people get to know me is that I don't define my work as helping people. I don't sit out today and say, Who can I help?、Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's not a language that resonates with me. I do. What does motivate me is providing tools、uh, and putting resources together. And I do am aware, particularly our organization, that if we do it well,、uh, it does help people.、Uh, so I'm not, I don't deny that. But our worldview, my world, personal worldview, is not to quote unquote help people or save people. And that's really because of that experience along the river. Yeah. But that, that seems to coincide so well with your core philosophy, not only for not being up here when you give people down there, but also the collaborations you have with the businesses that you really want to be on an equal standing and have the companies feel great value and benefit to be a part of what you're trying to do as well. I, I thought that was、I'm, really interesting. I'm very impressed that you've, you've done your homework because very few people know that、uh, before we had the conversation. But that is true. That is true.、Uh, you know, we want to, as much as possible, establish an equal relationship with the people that we are serving、um, and also people that we work with on inbound. So it goes both ways.、Uh, let's, yeah. Oh, there yeah. You, are. Can you Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, so let's just give a little introduction about、uh, the situation in Japan.、Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to talk more about your why, your core philosophy in a little,、mm -hmm. in a little while.、Okay. Um, but the situation in Japan, I think a lot of people don't realize 
how much food loss, food waste there is, and how many people are actually living in a food insecure situation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think we first need to really distinguish these are completely different issues with completely different uh, responses. They're tied to us on an individual level, our emotions, meaning that when we see food go to waste and we know that people in need, we feel a sense of guilt or we feel bad about that. And that's a natural human response. But beyond that, reducing food loss, food waste will not do nothing to take care of food insecurity. And so when people tie those two together, it, it's a misunderstanding of both the issues. I, I get that. I, I think I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit because, okay. because that's, that's my core philosophy as well, is that you have to try to find a way to balance people, planet, and profits. And I see what you're doing by tackling the people and the planet as a way to run a business which is profitable and self-sustaining is is so refreshing because quite often i will talk with people who are only focused on the people side or only focused on the the planet side mm -hmm. and i see you're tackling both sides but i get your point that they are very unrelated and uh don't really connect in the real world right yeah i mean the reason why i emphasize is because you see movies you see documentaries you see books and stuff like this even articles that say we got to reduce food waste there are six billion people in the world that are hungry and really these are two different issues that are only connected by our own human emotions and my only concern is that we're going to put a lot of activity and interest into reducing food loss with the idea that we're actually helping people to become more food secure and it's like actually you're not you may want to reduce food loss food waste for reasons you know the personal reasons and stuff is fine I, I wouldn't deny that but if your goal is to increase food security that's a different issue that you need to focus on to think about that i i also i don't i've supported you guys for years I've, I've talked about you guys for years i love Thank what you. you're doing but even for me i think there's a lot of things about uh, what you do and how you do it, which I didn't realize. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you do what you do, as well as the core why you do what you do. Go ahead and give us an introduction if you can. Yeah, so we have four basic programs. We have a hot meal program. Uh, we have a central kitchen where we prepare hot meals to distribute out to uh, to the to uh, Wayno Park and, and also other organizations that distribute out to other places throughout Tokyo. We have our pantry program, which delivers food directly to people in need. We also have our food bank, which is more think of as a wholesaler matching up large donations that come in out to about 300 different agencies and pantries throughout the Kanto area. And then we have, lastly, our advocacy and development, which also includes disaster response. So those are our four main things. Our overall goal, though, is to create a food safety net so that someone in need of food has a place to go and get that food in a way that makes sense to our culture here. Yeah. Uh, now, you have some data from some of your talks 
Uh, talking about the surplus food in Japan, food that is thrown away while it's safe for consumption mm -hmm. is equal to Japan's annual rice production. I found that really surprising. Yeah, that's a number that, that's out there that I would say is accurate. I mean, accurate and, as far as I've seen the last, you know, doing this for over 20 years. Yeah. And then uh, on the uh, food insecurity side, talking about running a food bank in Japan and how there's so few compared to other cities in, around the world, New York City, San Francisco, Hong Kong even. Amazing. Certainly that's true. And that, that's semi-reflective of the nonprofit sector in itself here in Japan, which is fairly small. Um, there are probably only about 15,000 people employed in nonprofits or NPOs throughout Japan. And, you know, my, where I come from, the United States, there's over 1.2 million nonprofits throughout the United States. And so, you know, scale is quite different um, in terms of history role within society, uh, expectations of nonprofits. And you actually mentioned there's a, a really high mistrust in Japan <laughs> for nonprofits. I salute you again. You're, you're, I, I, I held that one back. I held that, that one back because I thought, oh, I don't want to bring up something that's too negative and stuff. No, I did not know that. That's amazing. Right. You know, and certainly that is, I would say, not surprising to me in my experience here uh you know over the last 20 years and stuff um you know that there is a high degree and I, I would attribute that more to the fact that one we have a very good government here in the sense that takes care of a lot of our basic needs trust highly trustworthy uh corruption is practically non-existent at the lower level uh so people feel that the government should be providing all these services here and so the, the need for a nonprofit sector civil society sector is probably seen as less and so people don't actually come in contact with it as much as say as, as an american growing up where civil society was fairly robust uh, a lot of different nonprofits you engage in so it wasn't so far away from that that everyday experience so i think that's part of what drives that the last one is that in Japan, we tend to take care of people in our inner circle. And so it's like, why are you taking care of or reaching out or providing a service to people that are not part of your inner circle? You know, certainly natural disasters, I think, you know, Japan, Japanese uh, culture here does respond. You know, you see it in Tohoku, so Kumoto, you see it in Western Japan. Yeah, there's some pictures there. So you certainly do see that people will respond. But when it comes to social issues and stuff, I think people feel that's best left to the government to take care of those issues. Yeah, I found that really powerful. And that actually resonated with me on a, a lot of different levels because a lot of the conversations I have about why don't we make this better choice, which is less wasteful, or why don't we make this better choice, uh, which is more supportive of the community or people in need. And quite often the resistance comes back that's the job of the government. I shouldn't even have to think about that. Whether it's actually a gap in what's happening in reality or not, that's a very strong sentiment in Japan, I've found. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that also people would say, well, the government is a neutral player. And so you know, we should leave it up to them to decide what to do. And, and so that, that is you know, certainly one approach. Uh, you know, certainly my approach 
obviously is different. Um, you know, because one of the things I, I have reframed my work is to thinking this is my boat. That every day I come to work, every day I, I take out these things, a small little contribution to society, but it's a way to vote. Not the political side of the vote, the big P, but the small P to affect other people. And so I frame it that way. I go, well, this is my community. This is my country, if you will, uh, as long as I'm here. And so I can contribute to that. So I get more of a sense of ownership that way with the community. And though, you know, I don't carry a Japanese passport. Uh, and certainly, and ethically, I'm not Japanese, but in terms of my commitment and my connection to the country, <coughs> excuse me, I feel very much, you know, more connected to that framing it in that way. And I, I, I agree, you know, there are people like you just said, say this should be the, the role of the government. But, you know, my, my retort on that is, you know, what is true democracy? Meaning, if it's for the people, by the people, then... I should have a role to do that. And so even when we talk to the government, uh, we try to maintain that evil, even evil level playing field also, um, you know, when we speak to them. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you often talk about in your talks, the golden circle and that amazing talk about, <laughs> about how leaders can get past the early adopters. <laughs> Uh, to the mainstream, have that tipping point. You guys have had huge growth of support and action over the years. Uh, the food donor companies you show here, how you started with three uh, donor companies in 2002 and 2017, over 1,300. Absolutely amazing. Do you feel like you've hit that tipping point now or are you still in that early adopter phase, you think? Tipping point of, of what? Like of people aware of what you're doing and people who want to get involved. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot more food banks out there now. I think there are nearly 200 throughout the, throughout the nation, um, you know. And so I do feel that because there are more out there and there are more people out there, we get ignored more often. They don't People don't come and consult with us on that. And I, I, I think, you know, on one hand, that's good that there's more out there. I'm really, I really welcome that. On the other hand, it does feel a bit sad, disappointing that there's not that level of collaboration uh, here. And I, you know, that's, I think that's partly a function of Japan. Us as an organization, you know, I, as a leader, I'm always stuck between looking back at how far we've come and looking forward to how far we have to go. And, you know, there's that tension there to feel like, wow, we've come a long ways. Like you just saw that chart there. But then there's also I look around and go, wow, we are just a small little, you know, bookstore compared to some of the major food banks overseas. And so, you know, try to be realistic given the different scenario and stuff. So as far as reaching that tipping point, mm, no, no, I, I would not say so. I would not say that we ourselves have reached a tipping point. There's still a lot more room of growth, you think, in what you're doing? I would say so. I would hope so. You know, I mean, one of the things that I have come upon in the last six months or so is this sense of embarrassment about how I looked at different things a year, two years ago, three years ago, even looking at how we responded to Tohoku. And on the one hand, that, you know, as a leader, that feels embarrassing, right? You think, ah, I could have done that better. On the other hand, it goes, ah, that means I'm learning a lot more stuff and that, that we have a lot more 
ways to go. And so um, that part, I feel, you know, is more encouraging about that side. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let me just refer back, since we're talking about looking back, mm -hmm. uh, this mountain that you were talking about in 2016 and the goal to feed 100,000 people by 2020. How was that? Did you reach that goal? Uh, we did. Actually, we, had, we delayed, we extended that by a year because of COVID. Uh, and actually, yeah, we, we were able to reach that goal of creating a, well, not us alone, but other organizations coming forward, making their own pantries, people coming forward to create organizations for us to get food out there. So, yes, we did uh, reach that goal. Uh-huh. Uh, That's awesome. You know, you can hear the hesitation in my voice because, you know, in one sense, it's a, it's a numbers game because you're like, well, how do you define that? How do you look at that? Right. Uh, and, and so, but it was certainly a worthwhile goal. And I think 20, you know, we were hoping, I think one of the disappointments you probably hear my voice is that we really wanted that to be a showcase to show the world when they looked to us at the Olympics and we all know how the Olympics you know, turned out in the end. And so that to me was a missed opportunity. And, and so that was a bit dis disappointing, but yeah. You always shoot for the stars and you don't always get there, right? <laughs> well, it's an amazing uh, goal to pass, I think, considering coronavirus must have made things really complicated for what you're doing and the infrastructure of getting food and delivering food. How hard was it um, to adjust? Yeah, so, I mean, this wasn't our first natural disaster to respond to, but it was the first one where the pandemic was ongoing. The, the, the the risk at the you know was ongoing and certainly two years ago like all of us in the world we didn't know how risky it was and so a lot of the precautions i think we took then i won't say counterproductive but they were probably more than we needed to uh but we certainly you know we saw our corporate volunteers disappear uh because their corporations were asking their their staff to stay home uh, we saw mothers who were looking at their you know, had small children going to school, had to go, could come because they had to stay home with their children. So we saw, and then we saw a dramatic increase in number of people coming down to get food assistance. So over a six week period, we went through 26 iterations of how a flow chart of how we're going to deliver food to people. It was a bit, it was a bit intense, I'd tell you, every day, you know, it's you know, like, oh, how can we do this a little bit differently stuff? Because <clears throat> we don't have a big footprint down here. You have you know two hundred people showing up, your name you know your two or three hundred people show up, your neighbors get a little bit nervous about that and and stuff. But I, you know it was a huge learning process for us, and you know one that I'm extremely you know proud of our staff to be able to iterate and learn and develop and stuff. And it served us well when we went down to Okinawa in July of 2020 to have that same type of mentality. Yeah. I saw the Okinawa uh, video that you have on your YouTube channel, and um, I had not realized that the situation is so much worse for food insecurity. Even close to 30% for kids in Okinawa are food insecure. Uh, yeah, relative poverty rate in Okinawa is close to 30%. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow. That's true. So it looked like a great initiative. Uh, it seems like most of your activity is focused in Tokyo, which makes sense. It's the biggest population. Uh, do you have other branches regularly assisting 
around so, Japan? Yeah, our main focus is yeah, obviously the Kanto area. We have a warehouse in Saitama and Kanagawa and also Tokyo right here where I am right now. Uh, but every month we go down to Okinawa and provide services down there. And then throughout Japan, from Hokkaido down to Okinawa, uh, through our partner food banks, we do provide food uh, to them. But they, they're, they're, all those organizations are independent, meaning they're not under us. They're, we're all independent, uh, but we all belong to the national network. And the national network is organized by you guys at Second Harvest? We, yeah, Second Harvest was the founding organization for that. Uh, we incorporated that in 2013 as a Koiki Zaidan Hojin uh, with a cabinet. And so um, there are 11 food banks that belong to that national network right now. Now, what we're looking at now, you call your four programs. Can you tell us about these? Yeah, so our Harvest Kitchen is we prepare hot meals every week. Uh, the picture you see there is us in Wayno Park pre-COVID distributing food. So we'd set up a tent and uh, pass out hot meals to people. Now what we do is we create bentos down here, bring them for distribution in addition to bread and bananas and maybe something else. Uh, the second one you see there is the pantry. Uh, that, that's a relatively old picture, but that's all right. And then Maragohan below that is the updated version. Uh, this is where people can come directly to us and pick up food from us. Here where I'm at in Asakusabashi, uh, four days a week on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from noon to six. <clears throat> people can come down and pick up food. Uh, then also in Kanagawa, we have, we're open every Saturday and also Saitama also every Saturday. Wow, that's great. Uh, one of the things I saw in your CNN video, it's amazing to see you featured on CNN. How great is that? Um, <laughs> is asking, asking people to commit to doing something which helps other people as well when they come and get food. Are you still doing that? Yeah, so that was behind Maru Gohan. Maru means circle, Gohan means food. To create this cycle of people getting food and then making a commitment to give back to society, do something for society. <clears throat> and so that was the beginning of that. And that uh, we received a grant from Expo 2020 Dubai to help develop that. And then we took this concept when we went down to Okinawa. Okinawa has a, a, a concept called Yui Maru to help one another. Um, and there we asked people if they could bring a canned good or some type of food to when they come pick up for food. And surprisingly, uh, the first time we did it, about 85% of people did that. And the next month it went up to 90% and stayed consistent between 85, 90% uh, at our distributions throughout Okinawa. And so if you, if you see the, the video there, you'll see people um, doing that, picking up food or bringing food in. Yeah, that's great. Um, so at the bottom here, it says in 2019, Second Harvest provided 3.5 million food servings mm -hmm. to families in need. That is amazing. That's across Japan in 2019? That would have been mainly in the Kanto area. Uh, but yeah, we probably regional food banks would receive some of the food, some of the, food, the major, the majority of that I would say would have been in the Kanto area. And then uh, continuing, <coughs> continuing along with the programs that you do, you have food banking and advocacy. Mm -hmm. 
So food banking, you just think of it as a wholesaler. We have offers for large donations of food. We take it in, uh, store it in one of our warehouse spaces or make arrangements for it to be delivered directly to a welfare agency. The third, the fourth one there is advocacy and development. We're trying to promote and create a food safety net for Japan. And so we do different activities centered around that, ranging from an annual symposium in the fall on World Food Day, uh, to making speeches, to sometimes testifying at the diet or going talking to lawmakers when we're, when we're invited. So just different things that we can move the ball forward, I guess, in a way to help us to rethink what society might look like with a food safety net. Yeah, so important to have a variety of ways to spread your message and to interact with different groups of people, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's, you know, creating access to food is, you know, a wide variety of ways that need to be approached. And so, um, you know, just distributing food or hot meals is, is one way, but it, it is certainly not the only way that we go about doing our work. Um, I was really happy to see a lot of your individual stories from volunteers. So here in one of your videos, one of your drivers is saying for him, the reason to get involved was when he was in high school doing sports and the saying one for all, all for one mm. really resonated with him as a reason for him to get involved with Second Harvest. Uh, you have your own a really powerful personal story as well. Do you find most of the people who get involved with Second Harvest have these kind of deep personal stories which make them spur on to action? You know, I, I don't know because I, I often don't ask people, you know, why they're involved. I know that may sound like I don't care. It's not that I don't care. It's just uh, um, it's personal, right? Sometimes. Yeah, it's personal. You know, but if you do talk to people, people have interesting stories, as you, as you pointed out. I, I think one of the more gratifying things for me is when people come down here and they go, I thought delivering food in the park would be different, or I thought passing out food would be different, or I thought the people coming would be different, or I met new people and it changed my, my viewpoint a little bit. That I find extremely gratifying, and I think that's one of the, the key benefits of getting engaged. Um, with a nonprofit like ours, could be anyone, but it, it, just to shift your worldview and your mindset and, and widen it. Um, yeah. But you're right, people do come down here for a wide variety of reasons, ranging from they just want to get out and meet people to faith based reasons uh, to own personal, maybe they were as a kid, didn't have enough food or something like that, and they want a chance to you know, return that favor to other people. Mm hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, in your talks, you often talk about um, the inspiration um, from Martin Luther King or Hillel the Elder here. Mm -hmm. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Kennedy here, there are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. Are these still, do these still resonate with you? I gotta tell you, you are amazing. I don't know where you picked up all this stuff, you know? I don't know if you got access to my laptop or something, but. It's all public, yeah. Is it really? Wow, okay. Uh, yeah, no, they definitely do resonate with me. You, the Robert Kennedy one resonates from the sense that rather than us focusing on what's wrong, right? Why doesn't this, why, is, why didn't the government do this? Why doesn't that? Uh, which is easy to do, right? 
um, is to focus on what would be possible if we were to collaborate. What might we create together? Uh, you know, it's kind of the inspiration behind that or how I translate that. Uh, the one with Hillel the Elder and Martin Luther King, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? Meaning that each one of us have something that, <laughs> excuse me, we can do. And that, you know, um, and if we wait till tomorrow, wait till we graduate and stuff, generally that day never comes. And I guess for me personally, you know, to come back to what we said at the beginning, you know, about not helping people is not feeling responsible for people. Uh, you know, my own personal philosophy on that. But to say, I freely respond, I freely do this, right? Not out of a sense of obligation, um, but I want to do that. So that's where, you know, we have a, we often say here, murinaku, to not stress. You know, of course, I, I'm sure we probably work more than we probably should. But um, to really focus on having fun, enjoying what we're doing, um, and not try and try to have some, you know, work-life balance when it comes to that. Did I see that you're also doing Spartan races? You're quite the athlete, aren't you? Spartan races. I I've done several Ironman. Where'd you see oh, the Spartan Ironman. races? I thought I thought somebody mentioned that you were doing Spartan, uh, but Ironman, Iron yeah, Man. That's, yep. that's a real hard, hard pursuit <laughs> as well. My husband did Ironman for a while and we did both he? did triathlon, yeah. Yeah, I got my Ironman cap All here. Right. I Ironman in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty. That's a that's a long day, as my brother would say. That's a long day, and a lot of training. It is a lot of training. You can't. That's when you just can't show up after you know training for a couple of weeks and stuff. No, no, no. So uh, that when we were doing triathlon, we were actually traveling around Japan to areas we would have never seen otherwise mm -hmm. to do the races. Uh, oh, really? That must be really interesting for you when you travel around for Ironman, because you can actually see a lot of rural areas while you're doing the course, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've done the two main locations is Canada and Malaysia, and, uh, you know, it's beautiful to be able to see both of them. But, you know, whenever I travel, I make it a habit to go out and, you know, jog. I was in Sweden last week for a conference, and, you know, every day went out for an hour to go see part of the, part of the city and stuff. So within that five days, I saw a huge amount of the city that probably if I hadn't been out there jogging, I would not have seen. So, yeah. So do you have a lot of international collaboration, uh, like going to conferences? Like you said, you have that global interaction as well. Pre COVID I did. I mean, you know, uh, Dubai went to Dubai in February, but that was the first time out of the country. I think in over well, at least over a year <coughs> and in Sweden just recently. Uh, you know, just came back from there. So, but pre-COVID, yeah, I, I would quite often travel um, overseas to different conferences or different programs because there's a lot of interesting things happening outside of Japan. Um, and it's good to get those ideas and to think about how might we incorporate them here and also take some lessons learned from them, that some false starts or things that didn't work out for them to go, oh, okay, I could see where that may affect us or we might have the same type of a approach we might want to rethink what we're trying to do yeah um how easy or how difficult did it is it to get people involved volunteers drivers uh raising donations there's a few different ways people can help what you're doing right 
Yeah, certainly. You know, we we are open. We're operating Monday through Saturday, so we're certainly happy to have volunteers come. They come to our website to sign up. We want people to sign up so they're covered underneath our insurance, uh, and then they'll get an email with a calendar of different places they can donate their time. Uh, so drivers, you know, we certainly always need drivers. Um, we have several, you know, vehicles that <clears throat> that uh, require. Uh, a manual driver's license, but we also have automatic vehicles for that. So definitely always need drivers. And, you know, my enough of my staff speak English so that if you don't speak fluent Japanese, that's not going to be a barrier to coming out and helping out. And, and at the end of the day, what we do is not necessarily rocket science when it comes to um, preparing or passing out food, uh, you know, so. There's a wide range. And also, you yeah, see their pro bono services. If you have a professional service that you'd like to, to donate, certainly feel to feel free to reach out to us and see if there's a good fit for us to work together. Yeah. Um, do you, you often list the companies that are supporting you. Mm -hmm. um, has it been during COVID, has that fallen off a bit? You said your corporate volunteers kind of fell but have the food donations or money donations have that been consistent over COVID? <clears throat> so that's a good question so financially and it wasn't just us food banks throughout the world or you know frontline organizations throughout the world saw a tremendous amount of financial uh input in 2020 and also i would say 2021 and we were certainly included in that and that's what propelled us to have operations in Okinawa. We were only going to be down there for three months. We had a large donation from Barclays. They said, where else is there a need in, in the country? Uh, we we knew Okinawa was one, and we I traveled down there in June of 2020 to see what could be done. We made an initial three-month commitment, and we're still down there two years later uh, just because of the need. Food-wise, though, the unintended consequences of a 2019 food loss law was that we saw a dramatic decrease in the amount of donations. Part of this was that with the enactment of the law, uh, companies that were previously destroying food were now selling it to third third party markets, third party markets. And so um, we, yeah, seen a dramatic decrease in the amount of food being donated to us. I mean, I think it's out there personally, I just think that um, where it's being being redistributed right now uh, is is um, you know less to food banks. Yeah, you you talk about um, food waste a little bit. Yeah, how uh, Japan's quality control is really high um compared to america and there's really few cases of food poisoning here so it's a it's a good thing but yeah. if it's not perfect like the perfect vegetable or a dented an ugly vegetable wouldn't be in a supermarket a dented food can wouldn't make it to the shelf uh can you talk about that a little bit yeah i mean i think pre-2019 before the law that was certainly the case i mean if it we i would say if it wasn't perfect pristine and presentable it doesn't get put out to be purchased and so um and that would include not the item itself but the packaging the the boxes it came in so yeah japan had very very high standards 
for their food. Uh, you know, sometimes I like to say that Japan has not just a, uh, a belt and suspenders. They have a suit on standby and they know a tailor who can make them one if they need one. So, which means our food is probably the safest food in the world, probably the safest. Um, as you pointed out earlier about the, the relatively small number of people who die from food poisoning every year. The uh, result of that, though, is that we do have a high volume, relatively high volume of food that, that is destroyed. But as I said, post-2019, with the change of the law, uh, you know, companies are looking to different places to um, offload their surplus food. Now, my next question was about farmers. And if you mm -hmm. have farmers directly giving you food that might be ugly, but is very usable. And I see John Walsh has written uh, a question here and he has donated food from he his has. own farms, he right? He has, he has indeed. Yeah. He has. Uh, he says, do you do special outreach to schools, encouraging them to have their own student volunteers, particularly Ueno Park in Tokyo? Yeah, so um, prior to COVID, uh, you know, often students would come out and help us distribute, prepare food in the morning and distribute at noon in Wayno Park. Uh, but because of COVID, we've limited the number of um, volunteers and the style that we do. Before, we were providing a hot meal in the park itself. Now we are uh, just distributing a bento to the men with some other things. So we, want, we limit that because of risk. And we knew that international schools were concerned about, you know, sending out their students. You know, ASIJ used to send out students, I think about once a month or maybe twice a month to Wayno Park you know, to pass out onigiri. And of course, because of COVID, they, they stopped doing that. Concerns about people getting sick. So uh, the age limit for us, we ask, you know, kids to be, you know, 12 or above. Uh, it's just my own personal comfort level of having small children running around here. I'm a, I have four kids of my own. So I am, you know, I am a, a parent, but, you know, as being a responsible organization, we are on a very busy street. I want to make sure that there's some level of maturity with the people down here before you know, we get them up and get involved. That makes sense. So 12, 12 is like the end of elementary school here yeah. uh, from 13 is junior high. That's kind of the <clears throat> Japanese standard for becoming like a young adult, right? I think so. I mean, I think so. I mean, I, and I've certainly met younger kids in elementary that are mature and stuff like that, but just as a kind of a, you know, a cutoff point for us. Now, certainly, you know, uh, as I said, you know, ASIJ, the kids there were in first and second grade or even third grade passing out, but that's that school with their parents and, you know, doing it in conjunction with us because we we're doing it at the same time, but that's all them and the parents are right there. So we're not, how should I say, responsible for, the, for that situation. A lot of what you do, uh, running the food <coughs> bank, getting in touch with people who will donate money, uh, getting your PR out there, doing education and outreach. Mm. How do you manage it all? Like, how do you have- Not very well. <laughs> not very well. It seems My partner like will lot. tell you, not very well. It seems like a real lot. Uh, what's the most challenging part for you in terms of organization? probably managing myself. <laughs> I mean, I think there's some, you know, there's challenges here as a foreigner with all my staff being Japanese or, you know, to manage the culture, manage the language, manage the expectations. 
And so people I've worked long term with, there's a certain level of comfort and understanding uh, and trust between us. Um, you know, people with a shorter time period, there, there may be different expectations uh, about that. And certainly I, I would hope myself as a leader that I'm evolving um, to be a better leader as I, you know, move on and stuff. And so, you know, those are, I think, challenges right there as a leader to kind of, you know, what are the expectations of people around me? And are they legit, not legitimate, are they, you know, yeah, I guess legitimate. You know, I mean, some people look to the leader to be that visionary person that says, come follow me, uh, you know, and where I've evolved myself is to, I'm, that's not me. You know, what I want to be is to someone to help create some clarity on the chaos here to help give, uh, listen to people and to give, you know, voice to what people are saying and stuff. And so um, when people come and they want to say, well, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, geez, I don't know. What do you think? People get disappointed by that because they're like, I thought you were the leader. And I'm like, well, I am, but you know, I need you and I need us to talk about this together to kind of, to think about what are some different ways we might want to approach this. One of the key, key driving things is our values. Um, and so being really aware of what our values are, what's at stake here with our values is a really, uh, a North star, if you will, or guiding way to kind of think about how do we unravel what we're trying to do here. Um, definitely talking about the values is, is so important. And I, you were talking about that on your Google talks, I believe, hmm. uh, talking about the why being yeah. more important than the what and the how. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I got that from Simon Sinek, so it's not mine originally, but when he said it, it deeply, deeply resonated with me. Uh, and I've just seen over the years, time and time again, how coming back to that, you know, what is the core why of what you're doing and, and kind of like an onion, you keep on peeling back the different layers of understanding why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Uh, and it also could be, you know, based on your, my age and development and where I'm at and stuff, but, you know, coming back to that, focusing on that, why as a motivating factor, uh, to me is a huge one. You know, when I listen to people tell me what they do and stuff, um, yeah, I'm less concerned about what they do, right. Then why are they engaged with what drives them? What, what spurs them on to do that stuff? Well, I'm sure you can see that in your, your volunteers, right? Are they doing it just to tick a box for their school commitment to community service? Or are they really interested for some, whatever reason? Yeah, I'm sure you can see that in your volunteers, right? I mean, you can see it with anybody, right? I mean, and I, I think that that's kind of sometimes what people's own self-awareness and what they are, what they want to get out of, out of it. And so I don't want to, I don't want to criticize people who are like, oh, they're not having, they're not in touch with their why. Eh, no, cool, no. Man. I'm cool. sure you need you need both types, but maybe if you see that embedded desire to really more deeply engage with the problem, <clears throat> maybe those are the people that you can help get on your team for management. Is that right? Um I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I understand your question. I mean, quite a few of the people we hire. You know, I volunteered with us at one time. Certainly everybody that we um, interview, we ask them to volunteer with us at least once. And we really encourage them to think of the, the, the process to be a two-way interviewing 
that they should be interviewing us, asking us questions, asking themselves, do, would this be a good fit for me for what I want to get out of this? Um, it's certainly one that, you know, we do that because, you know, I, I guess I like to think of that we have a big tent here. People come down here for a lot of different reasons. And so, for example, you come down here because you want to help people. That's cool. The tent's really big. The, the door's really big. You can do that. But if you were to stick around and be here, you would be disappointed because that doesn't come up as a conversation piece for us. We're not PC, means saying you can't say that, but it just doesn't come up as a worldview that we have or a motivating thing, you know, inspiration we have. So you won't see it in our annual reports about the savior complex of us coming in to save people. Uh, you won't see hungry children there, you know, that we're feeding and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're comfortable with that, then we'd be a good fit for you. But if you're, if you want something different, then it'd be like, well, probably we'd not be a good fit for you. Yeah. So you mentioned that your core why is you just love running a food bank. Is that, <laughs> is that accurate still? I mean, I think there's another, you know, a couple different core whys for me is that, you know, I've been deeply blessed by my time here in Japan. So this is a way for me to give back and to return that favor on uh, Japanese ogaishi. So that's, you know, one of my motivating, you know, factors. This another one would be another why that I would have is that it gets a sense of that I'm connected to the community, uh, that I have a sense of ownership here, uh, that I'm not just a passive existence within in society itself. Uh, you know, so I think are too, you know, motivating. But yeah, just like food banking. I mean, you just like, you know, see this food here, it's going to be thrown away, but you can give it out to people here to make them happy. I mean, that's just like, how could that not make you happy? I love that. And I, I love that that sense of, of engagement, even as an outsider, you are invested in your life and work in Japan and you want to give back. I, I think that's a great reason to do what you do, as well as food banking is very cool. Making <laughs> use of waste is very cool. Yeah. Uh, giving food to people that's not being used to people who need it, that's so cool, right? This is some fun things, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good way to stay out of jail. <laughs> now you've mentioned you uh, first came to Japan on as military. That's correct. Have you kept any military context? Like I know Project Tomodachi, which was uh, during the Tohoku disaster, they were very active in giving support. Have you found any volunteers or any connection to the military in Japan? Yes. So, you know, we have people from the Air Force who are going to come out this weekend to help re, uh, rehab, rehab our uh, second floor across the street to make it into a store. Uh, and also down in Okinawa, we regularly have servicemen and women come out and help out pack boxes and deliver food. Yeah, wow. so the military still does. And, and actually, the, the sororities that are on the bases um, uh, do food drive for us quite often. And that's very, very helpful. That's awesome. Um, I've, you know, had that connection with the military over the years. We're in Hiroshima. We're right next to Iwakuni. Yep. But even historically, a lot of Hiroshima people will tell me uh, when they were kids growing up post-war, all their food came from the U.S. military. 
Uh, they would eat big pieces of bread and pieces of chocolate. And sometimes at the local schools, they give that as like a historical lunch today. And it, so they have that legacy of being helped with food by outsiders. And I thought mm. that's really interesting. That's I didn't know that part about uh, Iwakuni and Hiroshima, but it, it certainly would make sense. Yeah. Uh, we have another uh, comment from Wendy. What an awesome conversation. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Wendy. Love the philosophy and initiative and the results. Kudos to you both. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned people coming out and helping uh, in person. People yeah. can donate. Um, do you have any events coming up that you're trying to do, like a volunteer drive? We don't have any at this moment. Um, I have a staff meeting here in about 20 minutes. We're going to talk about our 20th anniversary. What do we want to do to celebrate that? Uh, you know, we're not, I guess we're not very celebratory type of group of people. So I wouldn't be surprised me at the staff meeting today say, we're not going to do anything. But uh, if we do, we'll have something. I mean, years ago on our 15th anniversary, we did have an open house and that was nice. Uh, you know, we're, we could showcase our central kitchen, our kids cafe, different places. With COVID, I think we're a little bit sensitive about having groups of people come down here. So maybe if we don't do it in July, maybe we'll do it later this year. We'll have an open house again where we can invite people down. Right. Well, maybe that's one way I could help. If you have 20 years worth of photos and you have, <laughs> you have people in the organization that you want to be interviewed, maybe I can help you do something online. Right? I'd appreciate that. I'll, I, might, <laughs> I might take you up on that offer. Yeah, no worries. Um, I noticed one of your volunteers is the amazing Jack Bale from <laughs> Alishan. Thank yeah, you. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. He's our chairman. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's great to see him in the in the shop and volunteering. Um, Tengu has been a long time uh, resource for many of us, uh, long time residents in Japan. I will tell Jack that, and he's my next door neighbor. Oh wow. I have long wanted to get out to Tengu. Oh, come, the cafe. come, come. I can't come. It's wait. It's beautiful. Beautiful out there. <laughs> Another great question from John. Uh, do you have anyone, any people you are inspired by in relation to your work? Probably a long list. You, yeah, I mean, there, there are people that, you know, I would name them that people wouldn't know, but that have been very generous with their time and their uh, knowledge. I've always been inspired by those people. Uh, you know, Norm Gold from St. Mary's Food Bank, the very first food bank in the world. We reached out to them in 2012, said, hey, we're looking for food banks in the United States to learn from. And he's like, come on down. And was extremely generous with his time. And to this day, he's been a mentor to me personally. Uh, but there are quite a few other people out there like that. And so I'm always touched by people who make time uh, to share their knowledge with uh, with me and with our team. Yeah, it's a it's amazing. I find you're you're nearly my 400th uh, interview since I started this series. Wow. And the more the more people I talk to and try to just try to highlight the good work they're doing, it's so rewarding, right? To to learn from other people, to get inspired by other people, and it just enhances what you do as well so much more. You yeah, I think that? we all have. I mean, all of us in our own our own way have inspiring stories, 
uh, you know, choices and challenges and outcomes that we had, you know, we faced, gone through. Uh, and, you know, those are, you know, sharing those with other people, you know, I think is important. Um, and so, I mean, I used to not think that years ago, but, you know, myself looking at those in my own life and then listening to other people realize that, yeah, there's a lot of people out there like that. Um, I just want to show this data and it might be a little bit outdated. Um, can you, can you tell me how you're doing with this golden circle? How has it changed or is it about the same? So food donors were at 2,300 food donors. I was looking for our annual report, uh, 2,300, uh, for our food donors, um, for the hours, that's about, that's about what it was last year, 2021, uh, meals uh tons yeah that that must be an old slide there but that's a little bit the tons are down but that's because i think what i'm seeing there is one where we included water and drinks so that seems like probably several years ago but yeah oh that's amazing yeah it's it's good to look back and compare where you are now and how you're progressing or uh, what hurdles you're having and how you can fix that. That's so perfect in terms of sustainability and uh, trying to get better as you go along, right? Yeah, certainly. You know, as I said earlier, it's that tension as a leader looking back to how far I've come and looking forward to how far we have to go um, and kind of balancing that and being realistic with oneself about that, you know, not to pat oneself too much on the back, say, wow, look at all we've done, but also not be hard on oneself to say, wow, this is all we've done, right? Yeah. But you know, there's always that tension there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Corey has asked a question. So glad Charles is getting his share to share his story and his <laughs> important work here. Uh, what's he seeing in terms of growing wealth gap in Japan and how is that connected to food security? Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, particularly like in the case of Okinawa, where they relied heavily on tourism. And as we all know, the country's been basically closed for the last two years. That, that inbound tourism is no longer there. That's really hit Okinawa bad. 85% of the service industry is somehow related to tourism. So, you know, that's impacted the economy dramatically there. And I think in other areas within Japan that are part of tourism or tourism related service industry has been impacted by that without that inbound tourism. As far as the wealth gap, I, I'm not, I can't speak um, accurately about that, if that's increasing or not. Um, you know, food security is increasing or not, it's hard to say because there's so few of us out here to, to make an accurate assessment of how many people, you know, we say conservatively about 22 million people you know, lack some type of food security, you know, throughout Japan. And so, you know, um, it, you know, that's just an estimate. And also the same with government has made fairly the same estimate, but both of them are estimates, not like a very concrete survey or you know, analysis of it. Yeah, I think we, we don't really know what the impact has been from COVID quite yet. Um, I was at a coffee roaster yesterday, a small coffee roaster, and he said it's been really tough for him. And I was like, wow, that's weird. And he said, well, most of my buyers are restaurants and cafes, and so many of them have closed. Right. And whether they're going to reopen or not is kind of up in the air. But he said on the good side, more individual oh. people working at home are drinking coffee. So he's hmm. been able to survive, you know, but I'm sure... 
there's a lot of eateries that have closed. Um, the whole food situation seems to have radically shifted in the last two years, right? Yeah, and and you know, so the situation in Ukraine, um, you know, food prices throughout the world are going up, and so you know, people are definitely saying within the next six months to eighteen months, you're going to see dramatic challenges to the food supply throughout the world. Um, you know, I was in Sweden last week at a conference, and someone pointed that out. They did say, you know, countries like Sweden and probably Japan would probably fall in that category that will probably not be dramatically affected, but there'd be countries in Africa, South America, Central America, um, you know, Southeast Asia could be dramatically affected by the rapid increase in food prices. And so that is an issue that will continue to, to grow. I mean, in Japan, our food self-sufficiency is only at about 40%. So 60% of the calories we consume come from overseas. Yeah. <clears throat> now, it's not to say that we couldn't increase that food self-sufficiency in Japan through different act actions and stuff. It just means currently what it is right now and how our yeah. consumption pattern is. Yeah. And I was reading about the the reason the yen is so weak right now, because I'm I'm planning to go and see family this year and and it's crazy, right? right. The yen's level. And one of the arguments is the inflation and that's going to have a really big hit on food prices, which is imported. And like you said, 60% or more is imported. Right. So we might start seeing a real increase in pricing in the stores, which is going to hit people who are already struggling because of COVID quite hard in Japan, right? That's correct. I mean, people that have lower income levels are spending a higher percentage of their money on rent, you know, food, other basic necessities. And so it will impact them harder than other people. That, that is definitely true. So what the work that you're doing is more and more important, I think, as we go through these difficult times for many people. Um, what do you forecast? Can you look ahead a few years? Do you have any aims that you'd like to mention or any other projects you'd like to start? <laughs> I always have projects that I'd like to start. That's that's never there's never a problem with that. Um, yeah, I certainly would like to see one of the goals that I'd like to see is one unified national food bank network. There are about two or three out there right now, depending on how you define the network. Um, so we would like to see at least you know one to emerge out of that more collaboration among the different networks. Um, you know, the second one I'd like to see that there be more uh, collaboration between the various you know uh, food agencies and also the government to work more effectively together on creating a food safety net for people. Uh, you know, those would be two things that I would always hope for. Uh, you know, whether it'll happen or not, I don't know. I mean, at least on the network side, I have some influence there, meaning I'm the chair of the national network. So I can certainly reach out to the other networks and plan we plan to this year to at least begin that conversation again of how we can drive to one you know, unified network. On the government side, you know, we can do what we always do is, you know, offer our hand and offer, you know, our, our experience and the willingness to work together with them to, you know, more effectively create a food safety net for people and stuff. So. So you have individuals who volunteer and offer financial support. You have companies. Um, do you also have some government funding for the work that you do? 
Um, no, no I, my hesitation here is because I've been, I've, been, I've been told that it's not government funding. Um, <coughs> money from the dormant bank accounts, um, we use that for a project in Okinawa. So um, while the funds are managed by the government, they're not, they don't belong to the government. I was, I was uh, corrected um, recently when I said, oh, that's government funding. He says, no, 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 no. It's, it's people's money. It's managed by the government. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Is there is there one or the other that you are in more need of or both? Are you more in need of people lending a hand physically being there or more financial donations would be helpful? You know, I mean, it's always a you know question. I mean, it's not, you know, more money is going to create a bigger bang because it does. It's almost like a gar growing a garden or grass you know money being fertilizer a certain amount is going to help but too much will actually be detrimental to the long-term growth second is it, it can't happen overnight um, and so some things take a little bit longer than we would like to so there isn't one magic bullet or one magic thing that if it happens it's going to increase it i would say definitely you know i always welcome people to collaborate with to help us to rethink what we're doing, maybe in a different perspective. Um, and also people bringing the other resources together to think of how we can make food accessible to people. So, you know, those type of conversations, you know, are certainly helpful. You know, and obviously lastly, you know, money in the right place at the right time makes a big difference. And that major donation for Barclays uh, in 2020 pushed us down into Okinawa. Um, and that opened up a lot of things down there. That's it. It's really important, right? That ebb and flow and changing, everything's changing um, in what you do. Uh, one last question from Simon. Uh, he says, do you know any grace gardens in Tokyo in which volunteers or your customers assist in the growing of food? Sorry, I do not. I do not. John Walsh would be probably a better person about urban gardening than I would be. Yeah, we'll, we'll put uh, John Walsh's links and, of course, your links to all your Second Harvest work and your Second Harvest YouTube channel, which I hope to see more of, uh, of it this year. Maybe I, I can so. help with that a little bit. <laughs> I would like that. That'd be nice. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining, Charles, and thank you for all the great work that you do. Thank you for your patience for me getting online. No worries. Uh, let's hope to collaborate more this year. I'd love to help out. Thank you so much. Take care. Right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Room. I show my tears to you, I'm stronger I drop the armor, now I'm bolder